Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. Good morning to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Morning, Craig. Matthew, let's resist the urge to discuss the economic impact of New South Wales' proposed Freedom Day, one that I'm personally very invested in, and discuss the implications of common prosperity. Chinese President Xi Jinping has resurrected the Maoist term, mentioning it a whopping 65 times in speeches made in 2021. So what does this common prosperity mean? Well, Craig, just before I go on to that, I I do hope, as all Australians do, that uh, New South Wales is able to exit its current um, severe lockdowns and and hopefully paves the way uh, for a return to normality, not just in New South Wales, but in Australia more generally. Look back to the question at hand, uh, common prosperity. Well, the term, Craig, is quite vague, but it refers to a move to a more equal distribution of income and wealth in the Chinese economy. Much has been made of the economic success of China under Xi's predecessor, Deng Xiaoping. Why, Matthew, has Xi's reintroduced common prosperity? Well, Xi's argument is that the first phase of Chinese economic development, that was lifting the population out of poverty, that's been achieved. Now, Deng's program of economic growth is what actually achieved that, but Deng's program also allowed for some to get rich sooner. That's the catchphrase of uh, Deng's period. Uh, And that was seen to be a price needed to be paid to allow uh, for markets to work in a way to uh, help eradicate poverty. Now, Xi is refocusing on a more equal distribution of wealth and income. So how significant, Matthew, is the inequality uh, in the income and wealth in China? Well, income inequality, it's been steadily rising in China since President Deng Xiaoping introduced a shift towards a market-based economy back in 1978. At that time, China was estimated to have a very low level of income inequality. Now, at the Gini coefficient, which is the most widely used index of inequality at that time measured a mere 0.16. Now, to put that into context, uh, at the same time, the US Gini coefficient was about two and a half times that of China at around 0.4. Now, that measure, that Gini coefficient, rose to a peak value in China of, of around 0.5 by 2008. And that was outstripping the level of inequality of many capitalist economies, such as US, Europe, and the UK. Now, that gap, that inequality gap remains today. For example, China's richest 20% earn more than 10 times the poorest 20%. And that's a larger spread between rich and poor than in the US and many European countries. You're listening to Craig Balanswaler and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresight shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, what is behind the timing of Xi Jinping's shift from growth at the expense of income inequality to income inequality potentially at the expense of growth? Next year, Xi faces the 20th National Party Congress, where he is looking to extend his presidency into an unprecedented third term and also to consolidate uh, the Politburo with his followers. Now, pushing for a return to socialist principles of greater income equality, particularly at the expense of the super-rich, no doubt find populist appeal and build his standing with the general public, in, in addition to uh, you know, the uh, popular appeal of his anti-corruption drive. Now, both the crusade for greater income equality and his anti-corruption drive targeted the elites in China society and hence 
his potential rivals to his authority, that is. So far, the target of so-called common prosperity reforms has been mainly at large tech companies, the size of which are now bigger than the largest state-owned enterprises. These private sector companies and their multi-billionaire owners pose a potential threat to Xi and the Communist Party's authority. So, Matthew, George Soros has also been very vocal on the shift in Chinese politics, noting there is an undertone of the cult in China politics stemming back to Mao. With Deng, Chinese politics seems to have evolved, mainly as the leadership was confined to just two terms. The rise of Xi has seen a return to the cult in politics, Matthew. The other rise in cultism has been in business and entertainment. But cult figures in politics, business and entertainment is, of course, a feature of Western society as well. So why is it so different for China, Matthew. Take extremely large companies such as Alibaba. Jack Ma developed a corporate culture that was designed to promote loyalty among its workforce to the corporation and to Jack Ma himself. In fact, it could be argued that for the Alibaba workforce, this was their primary loyalty. Remember Ma's dictum 996, work from 9am to 9pm, six days a week. That doesn't leave I've much tried to forget it, Matthew. Else. <laughs> now, in a world where loyalty to the political structure and to Xi in particular is paramount, you know, a proliferation of institutions that divert that loyalty, they, they become a threat, be it a business or a business leader or even entertainers and internet influencers. But is it all about Xi and his desire to effectively create a totalitarian state, Matthew? Many of the companies targeted by Chinese regulators are those that are heavy in data collection, such as Alibaba and the rideshare monopoly Didi. Halting the listing of these companies, particularly on the US stock exchange, could be argued that it protects Chinese data from potential dispersion and, of course, their people's rights to privacy. Isn't this the very concern of Western politicians, Matthew, with respect to the fang companies such as Facebook and Google, etc.? Well, that's certainly the counter argument. No doubt there is an element of wanting to break down monopoly power of some of these large corporations for uh, purely economic reasons and, and sound reasons for that matter too, Craig. It's also the case that China must reorient its economy away from reliance on investment and infrastructure expenditure towards consumer spending if it's to push forward into the next phase of development and, and avoid the so-called middle income trap. Now, for this to occur, this movement to the next phase, it's important that there is strong growth in the size of the middle class who can drive consumer spending. Now, growing income inequality is a sign that the growth in the middle class is under threat. So there are other less conspiratorial motivations potentially at work as well, Craig. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights that shape your investment outlook. Okay, so let's wrap it all up, Matthew. What are the potential impacts or opportunities, of course, to investors from Xi's common prosperity policy? Well, Craig, the most obvious uh, damage, let's start with the damage, is to China tech stocks now. Tencent uh, is down 15% year to day and year to date, I should say, and, and, and down 39% from its February peak. And Alibaba, it's down about the same, about 38% from its February peak. Now, the aspirations of uh, large data-driven tech companies such as Alibaba and Tencent is now severely limited and sales growth projections based on global expansion of those companies is clearly in doubt. More generally, investing in China assets is becoming increasingly a game of second-guessing China politics and the social change this implies rather 
been the re recent emphasis on how fast China would liberalise financial markets. So that's a, a really, I think, a sea change in, in how investors have to look at China. As we mentioned, the concept of common prosperity is consistent with a shift in the economy towards consumer spending. So one would have thought there'd be opportunities there, but it, it's it's not just any consumer spending. You know, look at what the uh, regular regulators have been doing there. Uh, gaming, entertainment, educational tutoring, all large attractors of consumer spending have all been targeted by recent regulators. Uh, COVID's uh, limiting travel, which is another major aspirational expenditure category of Chinese households. And finally, the China housing market is lurching towards crisis, uh, with housing giant Evergrande down 76% year to day. So uh, in summary, at the moment, it's just an extremely difficult uh, landscape to navigate in China at the moment. Thanks, Matthew. China has been for many years a substantial and lucrative tailwind for the Australian economy. We have seen the geopolitical relationship between Australia and China, of course, alter course over the last few years, affecting many of our local industries. However, with the common prosperity policy, can investors look to potential consumer spending uplifts from that powerful Chinese middle class? Or are some of those sectors going to be restricted through those greater regulations that Matthew alluded to? I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.